Hi, Stella. How are you? Hi there, Sasha. We uh, originally planned to have Julia Mason and Stephen Levine on today to talk about a paper they co-authored along with Genia Abu Bresi. And uh, their paper is called The Myth of Reliable Research in Pediatric Gender Medicine. And it's a critique of the Dutch protocol, essentially. A powerful, brilliant, deep critique. Yes. Really, really powerful. It's so thorough. And Stephen also wrote a recent paper called Current Concerns About Gender Affirming Therapy, which kind of breaks down all of these myths that we think uh, support, quote, gender affirming therapy. And he explains why they're, they're myths and they're not true. But what ended up happening in this conversation is actually, rather than focusing so much on the Dutch protocol and their paper and the research, we ended up talking about something much more deep and intimate, which is sexuality. Well, which was the consequences of blocking yeah. uh, adolescent's puberty leads to a blocking of their sexuality and the consequences of that. And why, you know, why, why adolescents are seeking to block their sexuality. It was I think it was a really, really good conversation. Didn't see that it would go that way, but I was really glad it did because it made it made for you know, challenging conversation, but it was really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those episodes where um, if you have young people listening, there were some, you know, discussion of anatomy and body parts and sexual intimacy. So you you may want to be mindful of that. Um, But it really got to the heart of why these clinical discussions sometimes miss the mark. You know, we can be so focused on analyzing methodology and the data and what do the numbers say, and we miss the very human questions underneath, which is why are we robbing young people of the opportunity to develop their sexuality? This is the key question. And so um, we, we think this is just such an important discussion. Of course, it relates to the Dutch protocol, but it's much more than that. It was a really humanizing conversation. It was lovely to hear both Stephen and Julia talk about their experiences around this. So shall I tell the listeners a bit more about Stephen? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Dr. Stephen Levine, who we've had on our show before, um, is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He's also the solo author of five books, all of which are concerned with love and sexuality. He's been teaching, providing clinical care and writing since 1973, and has generated over 180 publications, 35 of which are related to gender dysphoria. He and two colleagues received a Lifetime Achievement Masters and Johnson Award from the Society of Sex Therapy and Research in March 2005, and his recent publications on gender dysphoria have been read by thousands of people. And Dr. Julia Mason is a board-certified paediatrician and fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's a graduate of the University of Illinois in nutritional science with a medical degree. She completed residency training in pediatrics at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Dr. Mason has a busy busy pediatric practice, and in the past several years, she's encountered increasing numbers of gender dysphoric adolescents, mostly with neurodevelopmental challenges or psychiatric comorbidities. Dr. Mason contributes to Kevin MD on the topic of gender dysphoria. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Julia Mason and Dr. Stephen Levine. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, 
We probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. This is going to be a good one today. It is. Welcome, Stephen and Julia. We are so glad to have you both here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Stephen, you've been on our show before. It was an amazing episode. It was actually a listener favorite, I would say. So many comments. And um, Julia, this is your first time coming on the program. So aside from the kind of bio that listeners got to hear ahead of time, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this whole world of pediatric gender medicine? Yeah, well, I, uh, I moved to Portland, Oregon about 10 years ago. And I was, I was following the sort of the, the introduction of the idea of a trans child. I still remember one of those uh, driveway moments, right? You're listening to a story on NPR and you get home and you sit in the driveway in your car because you want to hear the end of the story. And it was a mother talking about her kid who was, you know, cross sex identified. So I was sort of like, hmm, that's a thing. And then I had a patient who who came in and was present was a, a female patient who was presenting very, very male and said, you know, ever since I was three, I've said there's been a terrible mistake. I'm actually a boy. This is one of twin girls and had a cute story about how people said, well, if you're a boy, then where's your penis? And she had uh, her belly button stuck out. She had like an Audi. So she pointed to the belly button. She's like, there, that, that's it. That's, that's my penis, which is, you know, cute. And I was like, oh, trans. Yeah, that's a thing. I've heard of that. Um, we have a clinic. There's a clinic over at the children's hospital. I will refer you to the, the trans clinic. And so I did that. And then, uh, they came back and they're like, oh my God, testosterone is a shot. I hate shots. I'm supposed to give myself these shots. And I said, that's okay. Just bring it here. And we'll, we'll give it to, you know, bring the medicine and we'll administer it to you. We can't charge for it, but that's okay. And then we ended up teaching, uh, her grandmother how to give the shots and, and that was okay. I continued to see her, him for years because they had ADHD and, you know, the, the, the testosterone led to a lot of changes, but it didn't seem to improve their life. You know, like mm-hmm. on one visit when they were really feeling down, they're like, I keep having girlfriends and then they leave me for a real guy. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, and just didn't go to college, didn't learn a trade, sort of one, you know, middle, minimum wage job after another. Then at, at one point was literally working in a factory that, um, what is that called? Where you dip metals in chemicals galvanized the galvanized metal you know just like the classic crappy young man job where you're exposing yourself to toxic chemicals you know because nobody else wants to do it and anyway so that was my first one and then i had another one who came in with their mother and didn't really seem like but i was like okay you know they wanted the yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, Julia, just the first patient. Yeah. What age were they when they went on testosterone? (sighs) Or roughly? Roughly, roughly 16 or 17, I'd say. Okay. So I followed, 
I followed him for probably five years. I think I, I, I followed him until he turned 21. Um, and keep, yeah, keep going. yeah, yeah. So another one came in with, with their mother and they were like a senior in high school and they also got, I w I didn't, I thought they were going to be, I thought they were going to be like differentially diagnosed out, but they weren't, they were also affirmed. And that was sort of my first like, huh, and started testosterone and had top surgery between graduating high school and starting college. So that, that patient did go to college. And then there were just more and more. <laughs> and I started looking into this and it just seemed like every single patient I sent to the gender clinic got the same treatment. Ooh. I didn't have anybody who went to the gender clinic and was told, you know, you need to think about these other things or we need to work this out. Just everybody got affirmed. And, um, at the same time at my kid's school, there were multiple kids that were transitioning, not met, not medically in middle school, but medically in high school. And yeah, I just, I just got into it that way. And, and the thing about this topic is the more you read into it, the more confusing it gets. And I, I found Genia, our co-author, or rather she found me, I think, <laughs> She found me and uh, I remember we got together uh, for coffee and she was so much further down the road <laughs> than me that the first, you know, the first meeting I was kind of like, oh, wow, that's, this is a lot, <laughs> you know, because just like I saw uh, Eliza Mondegreen complaining that when you talk to a journalist, it's really hard to give them a feel for what's going on without sounding like a crazy person because yeah. the situation is so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I just got drawn in more and more and Jenny and I were involved in the forming of SEGM, which is the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's all gone from there. Yeah. Stephen, when you were on last time, you talked about this concept of the chain of trust. And Julia, you've been kind of thinking about that as well and expanding on it. Just to refresh our listeners' memory, Stephen, can you just describe what is this idea of the chain of trust that you outlined for us last time? Well, actually, I stole this concept from an anthropologist whose name I can't remember. <laughs> but, well done. But... <laughs> Uh, it really was a reminder. The anthropologists studied how medical education works. And, uh, for example, I, I don't know why I know this, but in dermatology, there are 274 known diseases, and that's about as many diseases that we have classified in the DSM-5, uh, almost 300 different entities. And uh, if you look at subtypes and so forth, now, none of us can understand the basis for the therapeutic recommendations for over 200 diseases. It's just impossible. Yeah. And so what happens is that somebody at a high level does research and creates uh, a policy based upon that research or on a set of beliefs in the case of transgender medicine. And then they teach other people about that. And some of they teach the teachers, basically. And then the teachers turn around and teach the medical students, the psychology interns, the psychology graduate students, et cetera. Et cetera. And so we, we can imagine that there's a trickle down from above. And if you're a medical student or a psych resident or a pediatric resident, you, you just accept what your teachers teach you, right? You don't need 
research yeah. is a different thing. Even though the soul of science is skepticism, mm-hmm. the soul of being a student is to regurgitate what people <laughs> of you don't talk to you. Well, well, in fairness, it's our job as as students to <clears throat> expect to have have kind of respect for the teacher who is supposed to know their stuff. Right. And, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. it it never occurred to me as in a consuming resident or consuming teacher to doubt what I was being told, except if something didn't sound right, right to me based on my life experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, for example, I grew up hearing my generations of my family say you had to have a lot of luck in life. And then one day I was in a seminar with a psychoanalyst and he, everything he was explaining was due to the resolution of the Oedipal complex. And not that, not, and not, there was, I said, what about luck? Yeah. <laughs> channeling my grandparents what about luck right uh and he didn't understand what i was talking about he said no, no it has to do with you know i never resolved their problems with their mother or their father and wow. so i realized at that point in my life even though i didn't have this concept of the chain of trust is untrustworthy necessary uh, it could be untrustworthy i realized that i needed to have some skepticism as a as a practicing doctor, I and mm-hmm. and to the extent I aspired to be more in the knowledge generation business, or the and that begins with criticism. The soul of science is skepticism, is doubt. So this is so when I when I stole this concept of the chain of trust, it reverberated with a lot of life experiences for me. And oops. Relative to other people, a psychiatrist is is sort of a knowledgeable person about schizophrenia. But in no sense am I, a psychiatrist, a board-certified psychiatrist, an expert in schizophrenia, right? An expert is somebody who knows what is known and what is not known. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a general practitioner, like, I don't know what is not known in schizophrenia, other mm-hmm. pictures, right? Uh I have enough to get by if I have to deal with a psychotic layperson. In, in yeah, but after that, I'm I would no not say I'm an expert. And we we throw around this term expert very, very casually. Wow, people market themselves as an expert. If you look at certain websites of mental health professionals, some of them list twelve things they're expert in, and I yeah. laugh out loud at this. You see, yeah. Because yeah. being an expert is inherently humbling because you know what you don't know. Yeah. Right? I, I had written a document a while ago giving parents guidance on how to find an appropriate therapist for their kid. This was before GETA existed. This was a long time ago. And one of the things I said is be very skeptical if a Psychology Today profile lists a long list of things that the person is hyper competent in because it's just literally impossible. It's, it's impossible. It's exactly the point. Yeah. Yeah. So the chain of trust is an advanced concept for people who've been practicing for a while, who re- who already know how, how little they how little certainty they have about what they're doing. And if anyone asks them, "Why do you do that and not this? Why do you do X and not Z?" You see, they may give you some personal. Well, in my experience, right? But they don't give you the literature. You see, very few of us know the literature. And I tell you, keeping up with the trans literature is almost an impossible task. 
You know, yeah. if, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've done this. If you put into PubMed or Google transgender, you get over 10,000 hits. Yeah. Who, who yeah. in the world? I mean, I, I, I put in transgender surgery uh, once and I got over, I got 11,000 hits. Wow. So, so, uh, you know, let's be humble about this. But yeah. we don't know. And, and so what we're arguing about is, do I believe in this or am I skeptical? Yes. Mm. Or I, I, I'm sure. Uh, and I personally trust people who are uncertain. Yeah. And, and you know, right. one of the, the wonder, tell me if I'm talking too long. One of the, one of the things that uh, is characteristic about adolescents is that they're arrogantly certain. <laughs> you know? And the rest mm-hmm. of us are not certain. We live long enough to know there's a lot of ways to skin a cat and who knows what's right. But boy, some of my adolescent patients are absolutely certain. And they have no yeah. idea how arrogant and how stupid they are. That's, yeah. I mean, that was one of my that was one of my first red flags was when everybody from the local trans youth group leader to the the pediatric endocrinologist told me that 99 plus percent of kids put on puberty blockers go on to the cross sex hormones and surgeries. And they said that like it meant they were doing a good job picking which kids got the puberty blockers. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. 99% of 12-year-olds do not hold on to their decision on what to be for Halloween. Like, no, totally. that's not how 12-year-olds work. That means that your puberty blockers are not a harmless pause. That's what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a key aspect of this world that certainty has become a reason for, for anything. Because mm. certainty is more disposition almost it's more it's a way of of being for some people they're very they're very comfortable being certain and they they shy away from ambiguity but that's that's to do with their whatever their their psychology makeup i i was inspired by your your chain of trust and that um story Stephen. and you know when we did the conference at killarney we asked two different people to speak about it we asked stephanie davis arai and she wrote a she she gave an amazing uh, presentation on you know the the broken the you know broken chain of trust and or the betrayal of trust and I think um, Julia gave a, a presentation on the broken chain of trust both of them talking about how trust has been broken in this field and in different ways in different contexts because Stephanie was very much in the social context and Julia was talking about the the literature and I think it's a fundamental there's a few fundamental issues with gender and one of them is the presumption that we all had i remember when i was in the dense fields of the research i didn't know all of you i didn't know anybody and i was reading it all and i was going but this this doesn't make sense and this research is funny this doesn't seem this seems a bit shoddy and who was i to Mm. arrogantly think it was Mm. shoddy because i wasn't Mm -hmm. an expert so it's very hard to come to a place where you you might say this isn't good research. I remember a psychologist friend of mine, and when she first came across it, she she said she she couldn't believe that it could be wrong because it meant so many things were therefore wrong with society if all of this research was as bad as it seemed. So she spent an entire year, kind of withdrawing from the fact that actually this was shoddy. I, I can see why she did before she came around. No, it is. It actually is. It, there's an awful lot of shoddy research that has passed. But one extra thing that has happened, 
I don't know when it first came in and some of you might know, was the kind of the elevation of the lived experience to mm-hmm. being equal to the expert. And that has created a very muddy scenario of what is an expert. If I've if I've been alcoholic for 20 years, does that make me an expert in alcoholism? That mm. has really driven in with yeah. gender, I think, in particular, but in many different fields, that's become an issue. Yeah. Stella, uh, what you said in the beginning of what you, what you just said uh, reminded me that uh, in the theories of the mind, uh, Jung said that there were three aspects of the mental life. There was reason, there was feeling, and there was intuition. And intuition is the knowledge that one has that you don't understand how it got there. And Mm. when you were young in this field and reading, your intuition told you, watch out here, there's something funny here. Yes. And what I I like to remind people is, is, while I don't know what, what age really means in terms of intuition, other than you've had a lot of experience in many fields of life, and it gives you a sense of who's trustworthy and what's trustworthy and what isn't. And I say to people, to doctors and to parents and to kids, to trust their intuition. And part of the certainty of adolescence, I believe, is um, the denial that they have any ambivalence about this. Even they have intuition that tells them, I'm worried, but the arrogant certainty is a defense against recognizing their fundamental humanity, and that includes intuition. Um, so, I mean, I, you can hear from how I, I talk. I, I want, as I said in our first meeting, I, I want trans people to know that they're human beings, and and these things that we generalize about our lived experience, it includes intuition. It yeah. it includes the fact that there's there's conflict and paradox and contradiction yeah. in ourselves, and certainty is not is not trustworthy. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, something we touched on a little bit when we did an episode on the affirmative care model is that built into that paradigm are mechanisms to suppress intuition. Like every time a person has a doubt, it's called internalized transphobia. Or every time a clinician is suspicious that transition may not work, that's called a bias. So it's incredibly dangerous to take the, you know, naive arrogance of adolescence, that tendency towards certainty, and then overlay it with an actual framework that is meant to dispel our intuition. Like it's really dangerous. And I I think that's at least part of why we're here. And I mean, you guys wrote in your paper about the myth of reliable research. And and that's another way that I think people are asked to squash their intuition when people say, well, the Dutch protocol is rock solid. And there's all these papers about the validity of this treatment method, or we know it's quote, life-saving care. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the paper that you guys co-wrote along with Genia, who isn't here with us today, but there were so many incredible points there that even after years of trying to understand this, a lot of things were highlighted that I didn't really know and didn't understand. And one of them is you guys talked about something called the innovative practice framework. 
And that shed a lot of light on what's going on for me. So can can either of you kind of explain what is innovative practice? And then that leads into runaway diffusion. Like these two concepts feel really important here. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think, oh, go ahead. No, you do it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, so my understanding is that At the time that the Dutch were doing this innovative practice, that was a perfectly reasonable way to look for advances in medicine. This is before you could say the field of evidence-based medicine was developed. And so, you know, it's literally like, you know what would be cool is, and then you try it. And, and the numbers are small, right? So like and the these numbers innovative are small. practices are like on a small, small, small population where you're right. kind of like seeing if something might or might not work. People are operating off their intuition. They're like, I think that this would work. And then they do it. But, you know, then you run into the age-old problem of redu- reproducibility, right? There are like medicine and psychology is littered with all of these things that worked great for the one guy. But then when other people tried to do the same thing, it didn't work. Um, so yeah, the idea of the innovative medical practice. So what the, the, my, my, my read of that is that when they had their idea, like, let's give this a try, that was not a crazy thing. The crazy thing was afterwards when this really small innovative clinical practice was assumed to be evidence-based and then it, it, it escaped the laboratory and ended up all over the place. Well, in fairness, that's when it kind of gets what feels quite murky and shoddy because it feels like the results came in enough for, for arguably the, the clinical trial to say, this isn't good enough. We tried, now, you know, let, let's not continue. We might try again in the future, but right now this isn't appropriate. But that's not what happened. And even mm-hmm. further than that, when you look at the Tavistock, they did a clinical trial and they got results and didn't publish them. So then you're starting to go, now we're going actually into something that's purposeful as opposed to innovation that had some some worth to it, arguably. So the innovation in a scientific sense has to be followed by a much more critical methodology that tests the hypothesis that the the innovative work uh, generated. And Polly Carmichael tried to repeat it, and it failed to repeat it. And as you were saying, Sasha, there was a rapid diffusion throughout the world, and, and the chain of trust, people just believed whatever the leaders taught them, and that this, mm-hmm. was, this was done science. And, I'd love to know yeah. why. Why did that happen? Well, um, I'm speculating. <laughs> I don't know why it happened, uh, except that uh, I I think uh, doctors like to fix things. Doctors yeah. don't like problems that they can't fix. And uh, there is a lot of feeling about homosexuality that is negative in the culture. And uh, there used to be tomboys and there used to be sissy boys. And now I don't hear anyone talking about a tomboy and a sissy boy anymore. I, you know, when they curse in children, I, I know many women's refract that they were tomboys. Uh, but but today a tomboy is a, is presumed to be a trans child, mm-hmm. pre trans child or whatever you want to call it. Uh, 
So it got rapidly diffused because there were uh, there was a there's a larger social movement to redefine how women can be women and how men can be men. Whether you see this in fashion, you see this in in women, the percentage of women in medical schools today, and so forth. So there is something larger going on in the culture that we're responding neg- positively to expanding the possible the human possibilities based on sex or based on traditional notions of gender. And and I think every young generation needs to improve upon the world. And this has become a national an international notion that uh, I'm on the I'm on the the front line of the phalanx that is improving the world. And that's yeah. I think many young people are attracted to this yeah. idea. I'm not I mean, what does an eight-year-old and what does a 12-year-old know about the possibilities for living your life as a woman or a man? Um, and, and you know, I hear all this, all the time I hear that the do- uh, based on WPAS writings, uh, the doctor has to make an, a determination that the person is cognitively able to give informed consent, even though they mm-hmm. can give legal informed consent. I mean... I've raised 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds. I love those little kids, but they needed a parent to tell them what reality was and what they could do and what they couldn't do. And the idea that I don't want to have children anyway, so uh, infertility is not an issue for me, and, uh, and, and sex is not important. I'm not interested in sex. Uh, or today I'm, uh, I'm bisexual and tomorrow I'm eating disorder, and the next day you know I'm depressed and then I'm then I'm lesbian, and then a month later I'm trans. What does this have to do with our understanding of the normative process of being an adolescent? I mean, yeah, I like yeah. to go back to Eric Erickson, who never had the word trans in his vocabulary, and he said yeah. task of de- one of the tasks of development yeah. was to stabilize your sexual identity. Now he yeah. meant he meant orientation, but we we have a larger concept of sexual identity. And so the idea that we have people with MD degrees and PhD degrees making assessments that a 12-year-old or sometimes a 10-year-old or even a 17- or 18-year-old is mature enough to make decisions about about changing their body. You know, I I can't get over that, that there are doctors, including surgeons, who are willing to remove the breast tissue of teenage girls, yeah. uh, I it, it's like if t- we go back to we go back to intuition. Yeah. You know, society yeah. doesn't like to talk about the sexual aspects of the breast, right? Mm. We it's like a, well, yeah. we don't talk about sex, right? But when you think about the various uses to the woman and to her oh. future partner of the breast, not only we can talk about lactation, you know. But we can talk about breast stimulation as a, as a warm-up for orgasmic experience. Um, and the idea that a 14-year-old doesn't like her breast, well, what's to do with that? I mean, how many 14 girls like their body, right? I know. And how many like their menstrual periods, right? Especially if they have dysmenorrhea, yeah. menorrhagia. Yeah. And, and so, so the idea that, that we're taking these organs away from an immature person who has not even had a romantic relationship yet, right? Who hasn't felt sexual excitement in her nipple area yet, 
was mm. leaking. And then a doctor is able to say, oh, these they're cognitively mature enough. I mean, it's my right. intuition is screaming. You see, what is wrong here? And I mean, a lot of the really get, bright kids get pulled you, into this. You were thinking about taking taking off my daughter's breast, who thought who thought today she was this and to, and yesterday she thought this was that. Man, you would have to get through me. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. get past me. Whoa, I've heard too many detransitioners say that they'd had no sexual experiences, so nobody had touched their breasts before they had the mastectomy. They, they didn't even have any experience to look back or some, on even. Or some 12 year old or 13 year old boy grabbed grabbed the breast. Oh, yeah, know. yeah. So she gets assaulted and then and what what happens is that she thinks oh, being woman is vulnerable. Yeah. And then she hears about all the terrible things we hear that happen to women's. Uh, yeah. We're it's not lost. Right. At the at the conference, yeah. you had um, Ash, right, the Dutch detransitioner, mm. talk about how she had her first relationship with another girl while she was on yet, puberty I blockers. Think, yeah. Right? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that was yeah. fascinating. Jet. Yeah. 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 Mm. And that that um, was having first relationship with another girl, but. She knew that she should want to kiss her and that she should, but she had nothing because she, she was on puberty blockers. And yeah. that had all been just shut down. Yeah. And then then a very strange thing she, she explained, which I've heard from lots of detransitioners. I used to almost not believe them and now I do, but I just think we're only beginning to learn what estrogen and testosterone does because yet then was given testosterone and was sexually attracted to men Mm-hmm. And then when she stopped testosterone, she reverted back to being attracted to women. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's like, wow, that's extraordinary <laughs> for, for, for so many reasons. That's extraordinary. And she's not the first. I've heard a good few people say this. Although Helena had the opposite experience. Yeah. When she took testosterone, she entered into a lesbian relationship. And then when okay. she detransitioned, she decided she wasn't gay; she was straight. Huh? Yeah. You see, Eric Erickson said the task of adolescence, going through many years, is to stabilize the sense of self in in terms of orientation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. of course, I mean, if if you think back about how many boyfriends or girlfriends you went through in the course of, before you found someone who's both the one. You can mm-hmm. see there's such a learning process as mm-hmm. we establish a mm-hmm. sense of who we are, what we totally. need, and the character structure, the character traits of another person. So I, yeah. the idea that a, that a teenager, uh, even yeah. a, a high IQ teenager, I mean, this is process of dating and becoming and doing the Ericksonian thing. It's yeah. a it, it's a dramatic process with many ups and downs and many happinesses and many disappointments. <laughs> and and one of the things that I think throws people off, especially I work with so many parents, sometimes the kids come to the parents with this seemingly sophisticated language yeah. around gender identity and sexuality labels. And they're almost like educating their parents on all of these different terms and what it means and sapiosexual and romantic attraction and aromantic. And so parents can be, I think, a little bit 
confused and sometimes even clinicians by the seemingly sophisticated language that a young person is bringing to the table. But meanwhile, they don't have any of that life experience that helps you know yourself. There's a difference between reading a lot of things on the internet and actually knowing yourself in the real social context. Like when I interact with people who have these traits, how do I end up feeling? What do I end up doing in that context? You can't read that on the internet. There's no way to bypass that that process of experimentation and trial and error and heartbreak and joy and disappointment. I mean, it's it's weird how how much we have forgotten the process is required to become self-aware. Right. Other than reading great literature. Yeah. I had I had an English teacher and she would always say, isn't that just like life? <laughs> and she told us that the, the reason that things were great literature is because they spoke to many people in many times. So oh. I do think that we can learn things like that via narrative as well as our own experience. But that is not what kids are getting on the internet. They're getting, they're getting 150 flags and a list of, a checklist of yeah. uh, <clears throat> characteristics. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. Last week, uh, one of my teenage patients looked at my socks and said, that was dope. And, <laughs> and uh, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I... Uh, I am. I know this sounds a little funny, but I I think of myself as a student, uh, and and I tell my patients there are two doctors. And I hopefully have know more about disorders than you do, but you know more about yourself than I do. Yeah. And I'm going to teach you what I know. And you're going to teach me what you know. And yeah. so when he said my socks were dope, I said, "What does that mean?" And he laughed and he said something like, I'm your urban dictionary. I'm your, <laughs> I, I'm, your, I'm your young person's interpreter of the young person's world and language. Yeah. And it's true. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. true. See, so I, I, every time I hear this, this word sapio something, I, oh, I have to look it yeah. up or what that means anymore. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So well, I, I'm willing to be taught, you see. But in return, I I reserve the right to teach. In I reserve the right to teach. It's an interchange of ideas and notions. That's yeah. what I think the therapy is. It's it's a relationship between two people, and they teach each other about the things that they know. And and I need to teach many of my young 
certain people about uncertainty and, and what I know about the human condition, which is mm -hmm. not which is not complete. You understand? Mm -hmm. Not complete. Mm -hmm. because as far as I can see, every one of us is individual. Right? Every one of us. And and I don't want my trans people to present themselves as some stereotype. If they're mm -hmm. presenting themselves as some stereotype, they're not telling themselves the truth. And if they're not telling themselves the truth, they couldn't be telling me the truth. Yeah, I remember there was a lovely story of a trombone player, famous, world famous, and he was in his 90s and he was talking about how he practices every day. And he was asked, well, why do you practice every day? And he said, I'm still learning, okay. <laughs> which is such a lovely way of... I've seen our, our kind of vocations. But what you were saying, Sasha, about the pe the children coming across with this veneer of sophisticated language and sophisticated concepts is a key um, kind of deflector of what's going on. Because I find often the parents are, are intimidated and impressed and proud of, yeah. of the sophisticated language and the new concepts. There's something gorgeous when your child teaches you a concept you haven't heard before. There's something really exciting happens if my child just says something that I haven't come across it and they're teaching me. You feel proud, you feel exhilarated, you feel excited. Do you know what I mean? This was what's meant to be. They're meant to be kind of surpassing you. And I do think that happens very often in this case, that the parents feel exhilarated that their child has got depth and understanding of things that the, the parent has never thought about and they fall into that exhilaration of this is really this is really important that I support the, the this deep knowledge but it's it's not a deep knowledge and, mm -hmm. and it's a veneer but it feels mm -hmm. like a deep knowledge and that's what's so like everything with gender you have to look deeper so can I just go back to the Dutch protocol for a minute um, yes you see the rapid diffusion that you were mentioning um happened in defiance of scientific principles. Uh, this was not a controlled study, which means there is no way to, to conclude that the intervention the doctors say is the major intervention, in fact, produced the result. If it, without a controlled comparison, you can't know that. And, you know, the Dutch study did, number one, they highly selected the healthiest families and children. So they, they began with 197. They ruled out, I think, for reasons of mental disturbance or instability, everyone but 111. They gave 111 the option. 70 parents elected it. So 41 parents said, no, thank you, based on their intuition and their knowledge of their kid. And, and at the result, at the end of their 2014 paper, of the 70 people, only 55 were entered into uh, the final reports, and they only had 32. They only had 32 uh, data. Wow. Kids data on psychological testing, yeah. and so, so what what we have here is that we have a, a highly selected group of people selected for mental health and good outcomes, and number two, we have concomitant psychotherapy and support all along the way. And, mm -hmm. then, and then we have the questionable conclusion that all the benefits that they saw were due to puberty, the sequence of affirmative care, and not to one maturation that could have occurred in the course of seven years, right? 
not through the psychotherapeutic processes or not through some other accidental thing that happened that we know nothing about. And so the so people often say, well, you can't do ethical uh, controlled studies. And my re- reply to that is you, you, the reason you can't do that is simply because the professionals actually have a belief. Mm-hmm. They won't be honest to say, we don't know what the long-term outcome is. Yeah. That, the Dutch studies only at best had a year and a half post-surgery outcome. They know nothing about what it was like to be 25, we'll see, uh, and, or 30. They don't know the long-term outcomes of this. And, and what we're doing is affecting someone for the rest of their long life. You see, yeah. and have an 18-month, and for some people, it was a 12-month, you see. Mm-hmm. So, so what the general world did is accept the fact that an uncontrolled study is not very convincing, and yet they ignored all that. Yeah, and the yeah. people and the people at WPATH and the Endocrine Society, both of, of which organizations, only cite these two studies as evidence for the effectiveness. So all these scientists, all these sophisticated clinicians, all these professors of, of in their field, they've accepted this. They've turned their back on what they know about science. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's the myth, and and. We scratch our heads as to why this was so uncritically acclaimed. And now, of course, we're beginning to have some skepticism. It's taken, so. it's taken all nine years, seven years, eight, nine wow. years. Right. It's okay, but that's, science works that way, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important to note that their strongest results were on the Utrecht gender dysphoria scale, All right. which was sex specific, and they switched the sex given yeah. the sex of the test given to the patients after their surgery. And so you were asking trans men, natal females, whether their erections bothered them. Or wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you're asking trans women whether their periods bother them. And mm-hmm. neither of them are bothered by either of those things. And so of course the scores <laughs> went down yeah yeah we, wow. we talked about that together as well mm-hmm. uh there 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 are uh three ironies that i like to emphasize and julie you just reminded me of one of them if we take the biologic female who who was living as a male the vast majority of those trans males are going to have a mastectomy only and they're going to walk around. Uh, they're going to live their life with female genitalia and male social appearance. Now, if you want to talk about incongruence or or dysphoria, they we're we're, we're taking those breasts to cure dysphoria, right? And then we we're rendering them uh, half man, half woman anatomic. So to me, that's a that's a paradox. That's a contradiction. The second contradiction is that people who want to do psychotherapy as an investigation are called conversion therapists. But, but the people who convert the body are not called conversion therapists, right? I know. Yeah. It's just, to me, it's amazing. And the, and the uh, third paradox that I like to emphasize, I, although I laugh and I smile, I'm really sad about it, mm. is that people like us are called science deniers. 
That's yes. the New England Journal of Medicine in November had this parent had this editorial and it called us science deniers. And we've been saying all along, you guys are science deniers. You yeah. guys are paying attention to the evidence. I you know. See? So this this we call this projection. I think, right? <laughs> yeah. All this projection. What you're guilty of, you accuse other people of. So Those two things, conversion therapists and science deniers, that's to me that's that's projection. The other thing is my intuition says, well, maybe that's a new form of life to have, to present yourself as a male and to have female genitals. Uh, but I don't know. But to me, that's, that's, a, that's an inherent definition of incongruence. Yeah. See? And people have to manage that. And, you know, yeah. so when people say there's a 1% uh, regret rate, I cannot imagine that that is anywhere close to the truth. No, it's not. I mean, in in your paper, you also raise a question which Stella and I have kind of been thinking about as well, which is, is it possible that the widespread availability of the Dutch protocol and the kind of emphasis on its use could create the need for it, right? And you talked about this interesting study that took place before the kind of boom of gender dysphoric teenagers, where they started out with 879 participants, children, 6% of them were considered gender variant. So that was 51 kids. And they followed up 24 years later with these, you know, seven-year-olds, 24 years later, and not one of the kids from that group sought to undergo any kind of gender reassignment, even though technically they were available. But it was just like before the media started focusing on this. So when we talk about like regret rates or whatever, I think the best question to ask is like, what about if we don't do anything? Yeah. You know, you guys said in your paper, just because we can, should we? What if we don't do anything? So, what happens? And 24 years later, all of these people who are then young adults had basically preserved their physical health and came mm-hmm. to some sort of obviously reckoning with who they are. I mean, that's okay. important, and it's so rarely talked about. Well, so actually, last night I spent an hour and a half reading someone's deposition, and mm. he answered that question and in a way that uh, I've heard other people in court things answer that question. If you don't treat, you're going to yeah. cause immense suffering and they're and they're going to have increased self harm and suicide. And so, what is the basis of that? So, if we tell them about that study that you just mentioned, oh, that's an old study. Right. <clears throat> they always say that. I mean, because in the before times, yeah. before puberty blockers were routinely used, a supermajority of kids with a cross sex identification desisted usually with the onset of puberty. Puberty was a clarifying experience. Mm-hmm. And now we have the ability to block that. But And so more recent studies show that kids who have been socially transitioned and started on puberty tend to hold on to their cross-sex identification. And uh, yeah. I'd go a bit further about puberty. Haven't been one of those kids. And I, I now I'm thinking so much deeper about, well, I always did think it was quite, you know, about that experience. But I think puberty is a clarifying experience and a sexual awakening is a positive experience that comes kind of after or during puberty, if you follow me. It's a very long process. 
So for me, puberty was harrowing and the sexual awakening was joyful. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think we're very, we're very reticent to ever speak about a sexual awakening that's happening to teenagers. We're very, we don't know how to handle that in society. So we don't speak about it. But to me, mm-hmm. that it's the key because, uh, you know, when I've, when I've met with people who've been puberty blocked, I can see there's still a childlike status, which is, um, you know, when you're a child, you're thinking only of yourself. I want that chocolate. I want that ice cream. Me, 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 me. And then when you have a sexual awakening, you start thinking about other people and mm. you start kind of negotiating your status in society so that you'll be attractive to other people because you are attracted to that person, arguably. Yeah, and so yeah. the, the whole other people is coming in really quite hard and fast in those 10 years between 10 and 20. You kind of up your game socially. Well, I did, certainly, because I realised I wanted to be attractive to people. That hadn't come in until a sexual awakening occurred. If that's blocked, well, why would they start caring about mm-hmm. other people and their relationship. Mm-hmm. They won't have that yeah. kind of existential, lonely ache of I want a mate, if mm-hmm. you follow me, because they they haven't woken up that part of themselves. It's, it's a massive intervention. And also, even if they start to have that little kind of molecule of feeling that I want to be attractive to someone else, there's a new story they tell themselves, which is, well, I can't get in a relationship till I transition or nobody's going to want me because I'm trans. So there's another way that it kind of blocks the exploration of these important kind of parts of development. And it's like, you know, of course, we're here to talk about the Dutch protocol, but I just don't think it's it's something we can extricate from the entire philosophy around this. Like, Stephen, you said there's a belief inherent in all of this that we're talking about. And um, that that story people tell themselves just plays such a big role in how all of this unfolds. So, Stella, I would like to have uh, print out what you just said mm. in its entirety and publish that. Oh, Stephen, <laughs> you've made my year, <laughs> if, if not my life. <laughs> but and then, with the this. Your story reminded me once I had a mother come in here who was asking me what to do about her flat-chested daughter who wants to have uh, breast augmentation and she's 15 or 16 years old and she's really concerned that she doesn't even need a bra, but she has a little, she has a pancake breast. Yeah. And uh, and I, I remember telling her all that as far as I'm concerned, the value of the breast for sexual purposes is whether it depends upon the sensitivity of the nipple and how well how well the woman responds to stimulation. And that as far as a man is concerned, if he can feel powerful kissing and caressing a breast of whatever size and eliciting a, a very positive arousal in the woman, the size of the breast, the shape of the breast is not nearly as important as its power to excite yeah. her and to excite him because men need to feel like they're very competent in exciting the part. Yeah. I reminded her that pregnancy often pregnancy often increases the size of the breast and breast development is not completed at 15. Mm-hmm. So, but I realized that 
And I said, you should talk to your daughter about this. And she blushed and said, I can't possibly talk to my daughter about this. I can't talk about kissing her nipple, you know. And and I realized, uh, it's just because what you were saying, Stella, that, that society, the importance of, of the body in sexual, the sexual side of the arousal side, the giving and receiving of pleasure side, we are so crazily silent about this, <laughs> so important to each one of us, you see, but it's not something we can do- talk about. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 someone asked me twice in my life, why did I get interested in sex as a topic? And each time I said, because I've always been interested in sex, <laughs> like you. <laughs> but see, I people think I have courage because I will talk about it. And I say, I don't understand why you don't talk about it. It's so important to you. Yeah. Right. Because they, they have to come pay me in my psychotherapy to talk about sex. Yeah. And then people say, well, you're so blunt. You, I mean, I, I have my colleagues around the table sometimes, and, and they're trying to get at something. I said, why don't you just say what you mean? You see, mm. it, it's so it's so hard to talk about sex. I mean, how many times you hear the word nipple in, in, in society? It's like, we're not allowed to say the word nipple, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, we can say breastfeeding, but we can't talk about nipple. The only people talking about nipple are the lactation specialists. Right, or the surgeons. Yeah. Who cut them off and stick them back on like pepperoni? Yes. But we <laughs> we need to um, we need to acknowledge that our kids are growing up with massive exposure to terrible, violent porn. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I, I talk to kids every day about this because mm-hmm. I do physicals, I do well child checks. And from sort of age 12 and up, I get them alone for a second and I say, you know, are you dating? No, if you were dating, would you date boys or girls or both? You know, and I had a 12 year old girl who said neither. And I was like, neither. That's really interesting. So tell me about that. And it turned out that she had seen porn because, you know, when when you're a kid on the Internet these days, you don't even have to look for it. It finds you. It's like everywhere. And. Um, and she had seen, you know, horrible porn and she was just like, oh my God, no, I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing Mm -hmm. to do with any of that. So like everything is all backwards. We've got a society Mm -hmm. where the parents are scared to talk to their kids about the fact that breasts are erogenous and the important part is the nipple and it doesn't matter how much fat is behind the nipple. Mm -hmm. And then we've got kids who are exposed to porn. And if they, if they decide to start looking for it, they're exposed to lots of porn on a daily basis and it's just a mess and maybe in 10 years we'll have sophisticated ai that identifies that the person on the other side of the screen is a child but right now that is not happening it's a billion dollar industry i don't know how they make so much money when they give so much away for free but it's it's ubiquitous and the parents have no idea how much porn the kids are seeing this week, yeah. I've seen two men who are adult men, married men, who are coming lamenting to me how their life has been ruined by discovering porn when they were much too young. Yeah, yeah, they've been market they've been market researching 
for 30 years now and they know what works. Um, yeah, yeah. I've had porn addicted adolescents. Mm -hmm. I had a boy who complained of erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. He's 15 years old. I'm like, dude, no porn for six months and you're going to be fine. Yeah. And I could tell from his reaction that he was you know, like, this was literally a, oh, by the way, doorknob question. Yeah. You know, like yeah, I'd seen him yeah. for something else and then he brings this up. So I had no time to do a big sit down, but I told him that and he's like, yeah, you know, like I had yeah. guessed right. You know, um, when I was on my way to Killarney, I met this incredible woman on the airplane. We happened to have a row by ourselves. She's 27 years old. And in the course of like two and a half hours when we were talking, she kind of divulged to me all of these really shocking stories about what it's like to be a 27-year-old woman who's single in New York City in Manhattan. She's educated, vibrant, beautiful, confident, but like the kinds of expectations that were the norm amongst her and her educated, somewhat wealthy peer group were just disgusting. Like the kind of violent sex that were, was expected from the very, very first hookup, the um, dismissal of one's emotional connection to the person they're having sex with, like all of these things that are anti-intuition, they're anti-intuition. And it was kind of like I had just finished reading Louise Perry's book uh, called The Case Against oh, the Sexual Revolution, brilliant. which is a fascinating read. And all of the stories that Louise Perry was talking about, about the way that certain aspects of the sexual revolution has really been harmful for women, kind of came to life on the airplane talking to this, this woman. But what I was thinking about as we were talking was... We talk a lot about ROGD kids being kids with severe mental health problems and being like vulnerable and easily influenced by social media or whatever. But it also made me think they are legitimately trying to figure out how to manage coming to terms with sexuality and developing a sexual identity in a very bizarre mm. world where like the expectation of like, what do you imagine your first hookup is going to be? is not probably like, well, somebody that I really, really like a lot, who gives me butterflies in my stomach, we're gonna like be at the park, like holding hands and then, you know, it, it's probably not that. It's this image of some kind of scary, weird, gross, overly terrifying sexual experience that they saw in a porn or read about in a magazine. And so it's like these kids, yes, they have mental health problems. Yes, they're vulnerable. Yes, they're being impacted by social media, but they're also trying to escape something that they probably perceive as quite scary and not pleasant at all. So like, you know, the sexual awakening that you talked about, Stella, you said puberty was agonizing or something, but the sexual awakening was joyful. Yeah. I think a lot of these kids don't anticipate having a joyful sexual awakening. Wow. Uh, well, I, even, I, even amongst this kids, uh, the data yeah. uh, have shown that yeah. when girls have sexual intercourse, 60% <laughs> of them are inebriated. Their yeah. sexual debris is under inebriation. So, yeah. it, so it's a big thing to have sexual intercourse for the first time. Yeah. And all to me, it's a very sad thing that two-thirds of girls are semi-conscious. Yeah, and not in touch with their body, and it's a it's a a wall of intimacy. When you were talking about the woman on the flight, it reminded me of a woman I know who was telling me the same thing in Dublin, like which isn't a you know such a wild city, 
And she was saying, she went on this date with this guy and he had a bag with him. It was his first date, you know. <laughs> They'd been messaging each other, but it was the first date. And then later on in the evening, she finally asked, what's in the bag? And it was basically sex paraphernalia that he would get an erection. If, like, feathers and jelly beans that were apparently going to go between her toes. Like, this clearly was a very poor and adult person who brought a bag on his first date. Because it's, it's laughable. It's also horrifying. That, it's like, horrifying. what's in your bag? Oh, sex paraphernalia in case you have sex. <laughs> but another st- story that happened it's, with, within I my I thought own... you were going to say there were handcuffs in there. No. <laughs> Well, it was all sorts of stuff. It was the jelly beans and the feathers stuck in my mind. I was like, imagine. He's so he's like, so if, if, if the first time you have sex with someone, you need that many props to keep it <laughs> entertaining, a- you're doing something definitely wrong. But that's right, what yeah. I, I thought of something else that happened. Uh, it, was, it was among my own children, but it was a funny little story that just happened yesterday. But it's kind of part of this sex, this weird sex story that these kids are getting. We were talking about this kid and she has her boyfriend to stay over and she's only young. She's only about 14 or 15. And I said, that's extraordinary. Her mother would let her. And my, my two kids joined forces to say, Mommy, he's a nice boy. He won't be creeping on her. It's fine. And I was like, no, t- teenage boys have very natural influence, impulses. He won't be comfortable in the bed with her. And they had it like, he's nice, therefore he won't be creeping on her. And this poor emasculated boy is probably in the bed, not creeping on her. But five years later, we'll have feathers in his first date and be some sort of (laughs) born adult person who's choking somebody to orgasm. Do you understand me? Like the emasculation of the boys, that they're staying in beds. And I've heard it before. They're staying in the beds. They're not having sex. They're being told they're a creep. If they wish to have sex, yet it's a very natural impulse for a teenage boy. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. It just makes me think, oh, they've lost so much sexual joy. This entire generation have lost the fun of fumbling mm. <laughs> and finding their sexual place. Like, So you have a concept about normality in young adolescent boys, right? You have a, an intuitive concept about that, yeah. which, which leads you to be protective as a mother. Hmm. Wow. And they don't. Because they've well. been taught, no, that would be what a creep would do. Basically, it was like he'll be the yeah. same as a teenage girl in a bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. That's crazy. That's crazy. I mean, it, it is terrible that boys, I mean... Boys are being told that their entirely natural urges are toxic. Yeah. And, you know, and then some of them, some of them sort of Andrew Tate it and they just go for it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then some of them just hate themselves. But it's just like the Catholic Church telling, you know, the boys when I was young or younger, impure thoughts and you'll go blind from masturbation and all that sort of stuff. It's very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one of these young men who came to me this week with a porn addiction, I heard myself saying that you can never get over the fact that the form of a woman will be sexually arousing to you. It has to exist side by side with your larger understanding about what sex is in terms of context, in terms of the aspiration to, to love and to create structure, stable structure. 
But the idea that you can get rid of is, is you might as well forget it now because us old people still respond aesthetically and erotically to the form of a person that we don't know. It, mm-hmm. It's something you have to tolerate, right? Mm-hmm. And it's to civilize. And you mm-hmm. and I process of civilizing. But in order to civilize this impulse, you have to know that it will continue to exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You aesthetic, if you say you're heterosexual, that means that you have a great aesthetic appreciation for female beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and they will never lose that. And when you're young, that aesthetic appreciation for female beauty is associated with sexual arousal. And as you get older, it's not as arousing. And it's mm. still potentially arousing, right? We just have to accept this as an aspect of ourselves. We need yeah. to civilize ourselves. It, don't kid yourself that it goes away. The Dr. Levine can help you take it away. It's yeah. aesthetics. It's aesthetics. And right. it's about managing it. I mean, yes. I, I tell I tell boys that I think of of male adolescence as a years long process of sort of going through life and being like, no, 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 that would no, not doing that. No, no. If I no, I no, I'd get in. No, you know, it's just a lot of a little bit, your, yes. your 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 body tells you to do this, and you have to be like, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> I would get in trouble if I did that. You know, I say it makes you want to punch people that you shouldn't punch, and it makes you want to grope people that you shouldn't grope. Wow. And and adolescence is a is a years-long process of coming to terms with all the stupid things that testosterone tells you to do. But um, So I tell people that pornography has, was, is very useful in, in showing you the range of, of human sexual behaviors, interest in sexual behavior. It teaches you, if you're a male, about female anatomy because you want to see what naked girls and women look like, right? But after you learn about the range of human behavior and after you've seen your first hundred naked women, girls, whatever, the only thing left is repetition and it teaches you what excites you, you see? So I have a patient who used to masturbate by images of men hanging, being hanged to death. Now, oh my God! Now, now, look. You see a picture like that, and you say, "That's not me." Forget it, right? But you also discover the power of sadomasochism to excite you, and so you need to understand what pornography can teach you. But you can learn these lessons really fast, and after that, I think it just destroys you, it just excites you, and makes you realize how you don't have a relationship. You see, and mm-hmm. hence. Well, I'm not against pornography. I, I just want to say what the good thing about pornography for young people is. And after that, after that, I'm not so sure it enhances anybody's. No. Uh, I imagine that this has a lot to do with the kind of imagery they're looking at and how they relate to it and whether or not looking at that pornography is in is replacing the opportunity to engage in real life with people who will either reciprocate your affections or say, no, I don't like that or whatever the case may be. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are lots of factors there that can impact. I mean, just I want to say something as we kind of wrap it up. We're we're talking about the importance of kind of um, 
acknowledging the natural human impulses that begin to emerge during adolescence and going through puberty and into adulthood. And I just think it's really sad. And if you think about it from kind of a, a meaning making perspective, that actually the Dutch protocol is all about diminishing those natural impulses. And I mean, we, we talked about boys being taught that their impulses are wrong or bad or toxic. And I, I'm aware that there is a cohort of young men who have transitioned and then detransitioned who talk about the hatred they had of their male sexual energy and of their male aggression mm. and this fear that testosterone is like this toxic poison making me this aggressor, this oppressive person. So it just it's it's a sad conversation. I mean, it does not feel like there's a a lovely way to end this, but you know, for all of the focus people can have on how the methodology was conducted in Dutch protocol, all of that is important, but I think that the big question that I always have is like why are we taking away people's biological realities, biological impulses? the things that could get them through these difficult periods of puberty and adolescence. Help them grow up. Yeah. Listen, uh, I don't know if you title these, uh, these uh, individual broadcasts, but I, but I think the title for this ought to be what you and Stella were talking about, about the deprivation, uh, the eradication and deprivation of a normative, positive experience of coming to grips with one's sexual self, one's desires, yeah. the importance of sexual desire uh, un, unadulterated by cross-sex hormones and pubic I don't know. There yeah. must be a three-sentence way to say a three-word well, way. The importance of sexual desire for the adolescent experience, which we're very, very uneasy about. Yes. I, I think yeah. we have to confront it or grapple with it. So I think if, if you just take Sasha, what you just said, and then and when, when you listen to what Stella said, you'll find some four or five words titled that would be perfect. There you go. We'll work on it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was really lovely to have you both. We will definitely include your paper um, in the show notes so that everyone can read it. Um, is there anywhere else that you would like to direct our listeners so that they can find you, read more of your work, or see what you've been doing? Well, uh, Zenia and I just published on April the 14th a paper called In the in Current Sexual Health Reports, uh, called uh, Current Concerns uh, About the Treatment of Transgender Youth. Yeah, and... it's in there as well. Mm -hmm. It's oh, a great okay. paper. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I really recommend people look at the, the reference list, at least when I do this on the computer. If you mouse over a reference, you get a little paragraph summary of why that reference is there. And it's like an education just looking at that. So it's so, a really good primer. So I, this morning, because of my narcissism, I looked up how many downloads that paper had. <laughs> and? and go on. And, uh, they they only give it by the thousands. So and it's less than a month out, and there have been twenty six thousand downloads. Wow! Wow! Yeah, people yeah. are curious about this. Before mm -hmm. we finish, can I just ask: Is it easier for these papers, these kind of backlash papers, you know, counterpoint papers? to be published or are just more people, you know, writing the papers at the moment? 
I didn't see so many of them a few years ago. I I think there's a I think there's a there's a precedent yeah. is happening. You know, like these papers are being published; they're getting really good engagement, Brilliant. and so then journal editors are a little more encouraged to publish another one because it's apparently not complete toxin. I mean, you know, Lisa Littman. Lisa Littman's paper got attacked and the journal got attacked and they felt so that that really put a chill on things. Mm -hmm. But now we're having but it's it's not in the, you know, nothing of value on this topic has appeared in the journal Pediatrics, right? The official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. It will, I hope the New England Journal of Medicine is just not covering themselves in glory on this topic. You know, it's uh, things are changing, but slowly, slowly. Yeah. Well, thank you. Oh, and it's as a website, I want to, yeah, I want to recommend segum.org. So that's yeah. S-E-G-M dot O-R-G. Yes. And uh, there's, there's some good summary. If you read the spotlights, you will get, you will get sort of up to date on what's been going on. Generally, every major, every major event in the world of gender gets written up there. And yeah, really the, the Segum reading. spotlights are a great way to quickly capture a summary of all of yeah. the kind of affirmative papers and actually breaking down what they say and what they mean and what the responses have been. So that's a great suggestion. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well, I hope to see you in Denver, Stella. I will hopefully definitely see you in Denver. You will be given given definitely real. I'm going to see you in uh, Helsinki, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. We're going to be at conference a month these days. Now now we've begun. (laughs) Nothing will stop us, hopefully. Yeah. Well, well thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. That was a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Really was. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.